Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben, and you are listening to episode number 39 of the Lean Blog Podcast for March 31st, 2008. Today's episode is part two of a recent conversation with Professor Jeffrey Liker from the University of Michigan and the author of many books about Toyota, including his most recent, Toyota Culture. Uh, we're going to be talking about some of the challenges that organizations face in trying to adopt a lean or a Toyota-type culture, and I hope you'll come back in a couple of weeks when I release part three of that discussion. If you have any feedback or questions or to find other podcast episodes, you can get directly to the podcast page by going to www.leanpodcast.org. As always, thanks for listening. Um, now, now that there's been you know this this really detailed good study of of Toyota, um, what, what one of my blog readers had asked, um, I'm kind of paraphrasing the question. So, you know, is there an opportunity next to to study some of the companies uh, that that have started? Or gotten further down the path in adopting some of these styles. Um, you, know, you have a book from about ten years back, "Becoming Lean." Is there um, a, another book in the future, you know, somewhere along the lines of becoming a new Toyota type culture? Are there examples like that out there? Yeah, well, I think. Well, there, I think that there there probably are examples. There's other books already written. Like there's a few business novels. Uh, one of my Associates in France wrote The Gold Mine, which is about a company transforming itself, and there's a lot of those business novels out there of companies that have gone through transformation. Uh, in the last chapter of the Toyota Culture book, it turned out to be a, about a 50-page chapter that talks about the transformation process, and we have a few examples. But uh, a book like uh, I thought about you know, Becoming Lean Part 2 or some, some, something like that, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I think that would be worth doing. One of the problems I have is that it's so hard to find a good example. It's there's a, there's companies that have been at this for ten years or fifteen years even, and that have done really good things, uh, but usually they uh, really are still weak on the cultural side, mm-hmm. and they still haven't convinced themselves that people are their most valuable resources. So they make a lot of improvements and they really start to get it, and things start to click in specific factories, and then uh, they mistreat the plant manager uh, or decide that uh, the, the person who, who became their lean expert, who's really learned a lot, is costing them too much, mm-hmm. and they, mm-hmm. they give them an early retirement package, <laughs> yeah. and uh, they lose their key leadership, and then they kind of have to go back to zero. Uh, not really zero, but they, they regress. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they have a bad uh, quarter and don't miss uh, and miss their earnings reports and uh, kick out all the consultants who are teaching them. Or yeah, uh, you know, so there's a lot of uh, short-term knee-jerk reactions that kill the momentum. Yeah, uh, there's there's uh, there's one company, Wiremold, that's been written right. about a lot. Mm-hmm. That's a great case example. And you can learn a lot from Wiremold in their journey. And they did everything, you know, almost as good as you can do it, until they got bought out by a French company that systematically undid everything that had been done and t- fired everybody who knew about Lean. Yeah. Uh, so there's nothing about this that's uh, that's permanent that 
can't be undone by by uh, bringing in different leaders who don't understand. So uh, anyway, so I'm still searching for yeah. the companies that have been doing this for 10 years, really understand it's a culture, really make a big effort to uh, maintain the culture and maintain the leaders and uh, and keep on improving instead of you know, going backwards and you know, and going on to some other fad. Yeah. I, I did a podcast last year with Bob Emiliani, who's one of the, the authors right. of the Wire right. Mold book, and uh, it seemed to kind of prove that point. As soon as you write about somebody, there's that risk of... <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it was a summer for him. He had spent all that time studying them and yeah. wrote that great book. Yeah. And uh, then suddenly they're not doing it anymore, and all the people he wrote about are gone. Yeah. Now, the thing is that what he wrote about, in fact, is still legitimate because... What he wrote happened, right? And they beca- and they turned the company around, and they were really on the path to becoming uh, a great company. So that you can't take that away because of what new owners did. But in fact, there's a lot less interest by people when you're talking about a company that's no longer very successful. Yeah. Um, Want to get your thoughts you know, on the, the the impact of some of the uh, top American leaders within. Toyota uh, moving on to other things or, or retiring, Jim Press and, and Gary Convis among them. Uh, I, I would hope and assume that Toyota's culture is more established and more resistant to um, a couple of key people moving on. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts are, if you know the culture will keep sailing along or if there's some risk from even a Toyota losing some key leaders like that. Well, there, yeah, certainly Toyota's not... Uh, Superman or invulnerable, or you know, they have their kryptonite. And part of it is that they need a core group of leaders who really understand the Toyota way and uh, and live it and teach it. And guys like Jim Press and uh, Gary Convis were you know, two of the people who really lived it and understand it. Uh, but the other part about Toyota, again, this people value stream is turning along. And everybody's going through that people value stream, and they're being developed to different levels. So Toyota has, you know, about was about 60,000 people in uh, North America, and then they have a lot of Japanese coming over. You know, if there's a problem, like a weakness someplace, they'll be uh, not, they'll send over some people from Japan uh, to uh, reinforce the culture. So losing two or three people, frankly out of 60,000 is barely noticeable. Uh, the, in the U.S., we would typically think that the more senior you are, the more serious it is to lose that person. Right. So you lose Jack Welch from GE, and there's a big question of can the company ever ever recover from that. Uh, that's not the case in Toyota. The, the leaders, they call it servant leadership, and I remember, I think I have in my book even the, the uh, story of Gary Convis, and he becomes a vice president uh, at, at uh, NUMI, and his Japanese uh, sensei says to him, Gary, you realize now that you're vice president, it means that you no longer have any power. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and Gary realized that the higher up he went, the more distant he became from the shop floor and become right. from the core activities of the company. And the more he had to find ways to be helpful and to support uh, the people doing the value-added work, and more, and his role became more of teaching and less of directing and making day-to-day decisions. So 
So at some point, people like Gary Convis feel like I've taught what I can ta- teach, and uh, and I've got to step back. In fact, it's 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 the next generation of leaders are not going to develop fully if I'm all around all the time, yeah. you know, making decisions, and they keep on looking to me for answers. So at some point, you have to pull yourself away and let them struggle a little bit. Now, in Gary's case, he retired in the usual trade away like they would in Japan, and uh, he's now a senior advisor, and he's half-time for three years, and he's still bopping around the company advising people, yeah. and, and he playing an important role as a teacher and a mentor. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jim Press, it's more unusual that he just left and went to a competitor, and that doesn't happen in Japan. Uh, but Jim Press was also toward the tail end of his career at Toyota and not making daily decisions anymore. His main his main contribution is that he was made part of the inner core of uh, managing directors, of senior managing directors, and he was the only American on that group. Right. And no, only non-Japanese. So now they don't have that anymore, and they have to develop the next person who will play that role. But as far as uh, all their operations and engineering and R&D and manufacturing, they would barely notice that these guys are gone. Uh, their attrition rate is really very good. Uh, I, we have the data in the book. At least as of last year, they were uh, the the rate for for all members in North America, the attrition rate per year was 1.7 percent. Mm, wow! They're keeping over 98 percent, and the and for senior executives, it was uh, 1.5 percent or for, for the executive level. Uh, so they're they're keeping a lot of people and keeping a lot more. I'm, I'm dealing with companies now that you know want to be the next Toyota, and we do consulting and teaching and. We ask what their attrition rate is for their hourly people and their plants, and they say, "Well, I'm ashamed to tell you, but it's 35 percent." Right. <laughs> and Toyota's is uh, is about two percent. So uh, they that that's a again, Toyota is a problem-solving company. So if they lose some people in a given year, they do a root cause analysis and they ask, "What can we put in as a countermeasure to keep people?" And then they work on that. And uh, typically the companies I'm dealing with uh, outside Toyota are saying things like, you know, we never realized it was so important to keep people. We figured as long as somebody else came along and they had the background and credentials, uh, it didn't really make any difference. So they didn't really have an appreciation for the value of culture. That's what they were really telling me. They figured an engineer is an engineer, a mechanic is a mechanic, uh, and they'll lay somebody off just as quickly as they'll work to keep them. So, uh, you know, that's part of it is just simply having the really deep understanding of the value of human, of people, of that person, not of a person who has those skills, of that person who's been with us for 10 years and developed an understanding of our culture and fits in and knows problem solving and really knows how to contribute. You know, Toyota does that, so they really work hard at keeping people, and the reason people stay are a number of reasons. One is, you know, if you're in Georgetown, Kentucky, you live there and your family lives there, and they're the best employer in the area. So they work mm-hmm. to be the best employer wherever they are in that local area, uh, and they've been successful at doing that. For executives, uh, some leave, some don't. The ones who stay will typically say, 
you know, I'm learning every day, and it's, a, yeah. and it's a pleasure to come to work. And I can go someplace else and make twice as much money and be miserable. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I don't have the whole list in front of me. I just started flipping through this morning Fortune Magazine's new you know, top 100 companies to work for list. Right. And I'm, I'm pretty certain Toyota's not on that list, which might be more of a function of them not taking the time to fill out whatever applications are are, yeah. are, are required for that. Some of those companies had really high turnover rates, 30, right. 30% range, but yet, you know, because they have a, a great gym or something, you know, they uh, they end up on that list. It seems like the, the, the Toyota approach to creating a great workforce or a great workplace goes beyond some of the, the perks and some of the things that... that yeah, make. they're interested in how people are developed, how, how people... Uh, uh, wanting to stay because they keep on learning. Uh, they're interested in that commitment. They're they're not particularly interested in getting on uh, winning awards or getting on external lists. But they do uh, uh, very intensively intensively study their employees and they keep on improving that as well. Yeah. Like Gallup does a lot of surveys for them, and they like I said they keep on improving. For example, they at some point figured out that customer satisfaction wasn't enough that they could have a poor person giving 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 a five on a five point scale of satisfaction and saying this is a great place to work, but that just means that somehow nothing's feeling bad to them or the pay is good enough or maybe they don't have another alternative that's better. They decide that what they really uh, wanted were engaged people right. who actually were continually challenged and learning, and that was a different thing that had to be measured in a different way. So they uh, they started to switch, try to find ways to measure engagement instead of satisfaction. So like I said, this is a continual process. And then when, what do you do with the measures? You know, let's say that you find that uh, 93% of the employees are a four or five on some scale. What do you do with that data? Uh, you've got, you know, from Toyota's point of view, you've got uh, some number of people, five to 10%, who are defects who are not happy. So they want zero defects, so they're going to work on that. So what Toyota does in a plant is they get that data at the work group level, and then they feed back to the group leader the data for their people, and the data includes what their people are saying about them, what they're saying about other aspects of of the job. And then the uh, group leader now has a responsibility to use that for problem solving. And they have have to go through... uh, all the data in detail, and again, a, a defect is a defect. It's not, well, only 5% of the people complain about this, so I'm not going to worry about <laughs> right. it. That's 5% defects. Yeah, or- so uh, so they, they, they go through intense problem solving, uh, I think it's twice a year, based on that hmm. feedback, as well as their daily checking in with employees, and they have various ways to do that. Uh, so there's a continuous improvement process in improving employee relations. Other companies, if they did a survey and had a good score, they would sit back and say, good, we're, right. we're good. We don't have to work on it. <laughs> but there, it seems like there's a difference between saying we have 5% defects as opposed to 5% defective people or pointing the blame right. if right. what's wrong with right. them. Right. That's another good point is that uh, the, you know, the, the bias is always what is it, what is it about the system that allows employees to be unhappy or to make mistakes or to uh, get hurt, not what is it about the person who causes them to screw up. Right. 
And so that seems like just one of many examples of uh, a mindset that's very fundamental or it's really deeply ingrained in people that would be difficult to change the, 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 the mindset in, in the course of hoping to adopt a more Toyota-type culture then. Yeah, I mean, they have to uh, think about continuous improvement and respect for people is going hand-in-hand, hand, and that has to be every place in the company. And typically it's not, even if they're one of the great places to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, and they have to think, how can we start to work on that, start to, to make progress toward that and be very honest with ourselves about where we're at at any good point in time. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.